Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone, and welcome to the Deal Maker Show. So today we have a, a very interesting founder from the startup nation. So I think that we're going to learn quite a bit. He's done it multiple times, been to Y Combinator, raised money. Um, you know, has seen his companies doing an exit. You name it. So I think that without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Dean Sisman. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Alejandro. Great to be here. So originally born in, in Israel. So how was life growing up there? Uh, yeah, very interesting. So, um, uh, you know, I grew up not to the best of uh, social economic uh, standings, um, but I was, I was always surrounded by like really great uh, people and great schools. Um, and from a very early age, I knew that like my passion is computers. Um, I've been you know, playing video games ever since I could remember myself. And at some point I wanted to create my own video game. So I went to the library, I got a book on the C programming language. And just when I was 12, I learned how to program by myself and then realized that while, you know, video games have rules, um, when you're programming, you make your own, your own system of rules. So, you know, even video games took a backseat to me um, to how interesting programming was. And obviously, you know, when you were 12, there was a moment that, uh... You know, you go into the library and you start to learn programming. So, so how how did that happen? I mean, what was what was that process like? Yes, I just uh, um, uh, I looked up the internet. How do you make your own video games? And I think somebody wrote in a forum you should learn C programming language. So I went to the library. I found a book on it, and then that's that's what happened. <laughs> Pretty much, that's it. <laughs> very cool, very cool. And Olympics. I mean, you haven't been in the traditional Olympics as we know them. You know, very special Olympics. What kind of Olympics were those? Yeah, so uh, when I was uh, 15 through my school, I had this really interesting opportunity. Um, I was part of the team, uh, the Israeli team that participated in the International Robotic Olympics in South Korea, uh, which is a really, really big contest um, for those into robotics. Um, and it's, it's so important, like the Minister of Education of Korea is the one who hands the, the gold medals. Um, and we won, we won that year. It was the first year Israel won the gold medal. Um, it was really impressive because uh, I remember that for years I thought that, you know, my passion for technology is something that's personal. Um, but after we got back, we, we were in, you know, talk shows and on newspapers and magazines. And it sort of opened my eyes that technology can impact other people, too. 
Um, and it was really eye-opening uh, situation. Very nice. And obviously part of being born in, in Israel, it entails going to the army. And uh, we can't really go into, into much details because there's a lot of classified uh, information there. But, but what were you doing you know, there in the army? Yeah, so before, uh, before the Army, another special thing um, I got to do was I was part of the special program to do uh, a bachelor's degree in computer science for gifted students while I was still in high school. So I finished it when I was 19. Um, and then I got drafted um, into the intelligence corps in Israel. Um, and, and, you know, you can, you can do the one plus one on what my, what my experience is and, and, you know, my Army service, but I can't really talk about it. Um, but it was really interesting time for me because I learned many things. First of all, um, how to work under pressure. Um, it was my first time being able to manage people at a very early age, right? When I was 21, I already got a team to manage. Um, so I learned how to be a manager and a commander and leader very quickly, um, which also was, was part of going into officer's training in, in the Army. Um, and the two people I served the most amount of time with um, my commanding officer for almost all my service and my my protege who ended up replacing me in my role, um, they ended up becoming my co-founders in Exonia. So it was really pivotal time in my life. Very interesting. So I guess hey, from from this army experience, what would you say taught you the most? You know, and 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 perhaps you know, like in in from a perspective of being able to apply that into into being an entrepreneur. Yeah, so, uh, you know, Israel is a, is a small country uh, with many enemies, right? Like many uh, um, um, people who, who are really interested in, in causing harm to the country. So uh, in, t in the intelligence forces, if you're assigned uh, a project or an area of responsibility, uh, most of the time you are the only person in the entire country who's responsible for that task, right? Um you literally, you know, when you're 19, 18, 19, 20, there's, there's a, obviously a small part, but it is a significant part of the country's security that you are in charge of. Uh, if you don't do your job, like if you're sick or I don't know if you do, if you're lazy and you don't really do it well, then just nobody else is going to do that. Uh, that's, that's a very unique characteristic of, of being in the Israeli intelligence forces. And and the kind of culture that fosters is that uh, you do whatever it takes to be successful, right? There is nothing that you let yourself believe. There are no excuses that you let yourself um, believe that could really stop you from achieving any goal. Because if you don't, nobody else will. Um, and that really, I think, is, is one of the core aspects of what makes people out of that unit and others so entrepreneurial because you know that if you want to achieve something, there is a way to do it, no matter how difficult it seems. I love that. I love that. You know, I've, I, I also find, you know, for me, that was kind of a breakthrough too, uh, during my years, you know, like uh, building and scaling stuff. And, and is that nobody's going to come and save you. If you don't do it for yourself, nobody else is going to do it for you. Exactly. So I, I really love that. So thank you for sharing that, Dean. And I guess in your case, you know, rather than going after after the experience in the army, rather than going into a corporate and you know really starting to to do some stuff and to learn, I mean, you you literally went at it uh, as an entrepreneur. You took the leap of faith and and you started, you know, like with with your first company. So tell us about this experience. 
Yeah, so when I was was about to leave the army, I thought about what to do next. Um, and, and like you said, many people join, you know, like a Facebook or a Google um, or they go into another startup. But um, this also ties into something else, uh, which is I'm, I'm fairly young for my, you know, uh, position in my career. I'm 29 and I have a lot of my friends who are my age who are thinking about starting a company and they ask me for my advice and they always ask me, should I start a company? Can I be a founder? And I always give them the exact same answer, which is no, uh, don't do it. It's a mistake. Um, don't start a company. Uh, and then they ask me, well, why, why did you do it? Um, and my answer is always the same, which is I, I don't have a choice. Um, and to explain that, you know, my, my childhood, my upbringing, my history, my life has, has um, made me, you know, and you can use any, any kind of verb. I think most of them are negative. You could, you could say scarred or damaged or, or broken or, or whatever. Um, it's made me unable to enjoy a normal job, right? Like I cannot do a nine to five job um, to save my life, literally. I, I don't think I could survive doing a regular nine to five job. I need, I need that, you know, I like to call it a crusade, right? It's not even a mission. It's a crusade because when you go on a mission, it sounds very honorable, but a crusade just sounds crazy, right? It just sounds like so disconnected from uh, reality that why would you do it? Um, and, and I need those in my life. I need that challenge and I need that ultimate goal that feels almost unachievable to find meaning in my own life. Um, and I feel that's one of the only reasons why you should start a company or be a founder because it is so difficult to do. Um, it really takes everything uh, out of any aspect of your life to be able to pull it off. Um, and, and I really want to make sure that people do it for the right reasons, which for me are just, just a lack of choice, right? This is the only thing I can do and be, um, and be happy. So I, I realized this when I was about to leave the army and, uh, I, I tried to ask people, you know, what should I do? Uh, I, I knew like I had a very, very strong technical knowledge in cybersecurity, but I didn't know anything about the industry. I didn't know anything about what it's like to run a company. Um, and a good mentor of mine connected me to this guy who was a very experienced uh, cybersecurity industry veteran who was starting a company. Um, and his idea really struck a chord with me um, from my own experience um, in cybersecurity. Um, and we ended up joining forces and started uh, Symmetria. So one of the things that I wanted to ask you, you know, like before we jump into Symmetria, you know, you were talking about the journey of an entrepreneur and, you know, your advice of not doing it. I guess from your experience now of, of having been at it for, for a couple of times, what would you say is the hardest about being an entrepreneur? Uh, um, I think, well, it's sort of cliche to say, um, but, but it's, it's the emotional roller coaster. Right. Um, and the reason it's an emotional roller coaster is something that most people don't understand about what it is to be a founder. When you're a founder, the alignment between you personally and your company are completely overlapping. Right. There is no difference between you and the company. If the company's successful, you're successful. If you're un if if the company's unsuccessful, you're unsuccessful. Um, and, and that's very special to being a founder. If you go to work for uh, Cisco, doesn't matter, you know, how Cisco's quarterly earnings go. You could always say, yeah, you know, I did my job really well. Everybody would 
would believe you probably um, and still think you're a great person and you're successful. Um, even if you go to a startup that fails as an employee, you can always, you know, yeah, I did, you know, th these interesting things. You are not labeled as a failure, right? But if you are a founder and your company fails, you are the failure, right? Like you cannot blame anybody else. Um, so it becomes so personal, anything that happens um, in a company when you're a founder. And it just takes your ability to handle those emotions um, because they are so powerful, right? Um, and something funny that nobody understands is when public companies uh, have bad quarters, right? Everybody knows about it, right? The company goes and, and does the quarterly earnings and, uh, you know, the CEO takes some flack. Maybe the CEO gets fired. But even that CEO, most of the time, he's a person who has a job, right? Like he goes to work. He has a job. And even if he gets fired, he's like, okay, that didn't work out. I'll find a new job. Um, but, but when you're a private startup, the only thing you can talk about is the positive stuff, right? You don't go ahead and, and you know, publish on LinkedIn that you lost a customer because um, that makes no sense. So you have to, to you know, very privately manage all the negative things that are happening. Um, and it's really nice to get the feedback on the positive things. But nobody really understands, right? It's very lonely. Nobody knows about the hardships that you're going through. Yeah, no, absolutely. So, so I guess let's fast forward here. So, Symmetria. So, you were mentioning that you connected with a co-founder. Uh, and then tell us about the experience here, the journey. What was it like? So, it was, it was very interesting because uh, we went through Y Combinator, um, which is, you know, arguably the best uh, accelerator in the world that has, like, very, very successful companies that have come out of it. And it was, it was a great school, right? Like, I, I didn't know anything about business, let alone what it's like to fundraise or start a company or uh, scale a company or, or you know, do sales. Um, and I learned a lot about what it's like to be in the industry, what it's like to actually have product market fit, uh, what it's like to fundraise, what it's like to do sales. Um, all those things were really new to me. Um, and, and as a CTO, you get to touch, and, and like CTO and co-founder, you get to touch pretty much whatever uh, the company does at any point in time, right? In the beginning, uh, the product that we developed, the product that got sold for the first time, like we had a you know financial tech company in California buy it for a five-figure amount. Um, that was all code that I wrote, right? Like I wrote the entire thing in my apartment, um, some of it in my underwear. Uh, but uh, if you fast forward <laughs> like six months after, it's, it's, you know, fundraising and hiring. And then six months after it's, it's you know, sales and product. Um, and a year after it's like totally like, you know, upper level management. Um, so it was just a very interesting school. Uh, but, but while I was there, I constantly kept understanding many things about cybersecurity and the power of, of products and problems, right? Um, and, and I think what most people don't understand is that startups have so many things going against them. You really have to understand how to get the core strengths of, of that escape velocity, like getting to that point where your company is taking off and is successful. It's incredibly difficult. It's, it's much harder than what most people think. And, and the understanding of what that takes, I think I got through Symmetria. Because Symmetria, what was the, the business model of Symmetria? 
So our product was, at that time, uh, it was really, we started the company in 2015. And at that point, many large organizations, uh, you know, Target, and uh, I think it was also um, other very famous companies, I think it was JP Morgan, uh, got hacked by advanced threats, right? Like somebody got into their network, passed through, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars worth of defenses, um, and was still able to get everything they wanted. Um, so in Symmetria, what we wanted to say was, instead of trying to defeat an attacker who has all the technological advantages, right? They can attack whenever they want. They don't have to do any sort of compliance. They're as agile as they want. Um, they have the, they only need to win once rather than the defender needing to, to win all the time. Um, so we thought instead of trying to beat them in, in an unfair way, um, let's try and make them uh, lose by utilizing the only advantage a defender has, which is the home court advantage, right? The attacker doesn't know your network when it's, when it's penetrated and trying to find what they're looking for. So what we did was something called cyber deception, basically taking the concept of honeypots, um, but making it into like a big enterprise um, and, and more than just the script type uh, solution to make uh, decoys and traps that attackers will trip over when they're in a, in a, in a network that they've infiltrated. Um, Got it. Yeah. Got it. And obviously this is a, a company where, where you did the, the full cycle as a founder. I mean, you guys created it. You know, you scaled it, and then the company ended up getting acquired. So, I guess, what was your biggest takeaway from your experience with Symmetria? Yeah. Um, so, during Symmetria uh, was where um, you know I ended up getting the idea um, for what ended up becoming Exonius afterwards. Um, and the story goes is that uh, I was working with a very, very, very large corporation in the U.S. I can't mention the name, but about as big as you can imagine. Um, and we were we were trying to find attackers in, in their own network, right? Um, and then at some point, we get an indication, and this is very clear cut, um, of, of a threat being in their network and infecting machines. Um, and this threat is called APT28, and it's it's attributed by the companies that researched it, uh, which I think is Mandiant and CrowdStrike, um, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, it's, it's attributed to the Chinese government, right? So basically, they were in their network. We were seeing evidence of this. Um, and uh, we were very excited when we found this because we thought, hey, you know, this is great. Now this, this, com this company is going to buy our product because we found this. And when I showed them the results, they were not very particularly excited. Um, first, because they had some hints of the fact that that threat actor has already breached their network. Um, and they weren't like really excited. They were like, OK, great. Now you have some evidence of it, but we can't do anything about it. And And I said... I was, I was, maybe I was naive back then, but I was surprised. I was like, well, we know which machine uh, did this infection, right? There is a machine in your network. It has an IP address, has a host name. We know it's infected. We know the actor is operating from it. Can we research it? Let's, you know, let's figure out what it's doing. Let's figure out where it is in the network. And they told me flat out, we're, we're not going to find it. And I said, what, what do you mean? It's it's a machine in your network. It's your your machine, right? Um, they said, well, yeah, but it's you know one of the subnets with a dynamic IP, and like we'll we'll never figure out what it is. And I I couldn't understand what they were trying to tell me, so I told them let's let's go through all the systems that you have, right? You have like agent systems, network systems that should have some data about this thing, and whatever system we would go into, 
either it would have 17,000 results for that five minutes where we saw that infection take place, um, or it would have nothing, right? Like impossible to understand what this thing is. Um, and we actually finished that day by them emailing other people asking, uh, you know, do you know what this machine is or why it's there or who owns it? And I finished that day. I was, I was blown away. I could not comprehend how it's easier to find the most, one of the most advanced threats in the world infecting a network, but that exact same team cannot know what a machine in their network is. Um, so I continued to ask them more questions, and I even got to the point of asking them, do you, do you even know how many machines do you have? And I remember them telling me between one and a half million to three million. Now, if you go to a parent and ask them how many kids do you have, and they say between two and four, um, that's a pretty alarming answer, right? Like, it doesn't make much sense. Or if you go to a CFO and you ask them how much money is in the balance sheet, and they'll say we have between, you know, 15 and $30 million. That's also like a really bad CFO. So I asked them, like, how, how does this happen? And, and they told me, if you go far enough into the past, it wasn't like that, right? Like when PCs with Windows, um, you know, you had like one type of device, one operating system. It was one network, one management solution. It was really easy. Um, but now you have dozens out of each one of those variables I mentioned. Um, and everything is, is incredibly fragmented. So they don't know. Um, and then every every other CIO or CISO I met, I would ask, do you know how many devices do you have? Um, and they would tell me either I don't know or they would give me a wide enough range that means I don't know. So it wasn't a proficiency issue. It was something that everybody was suffering from. Um, and that's sort of what you know catalyzed the idea around Exonius that the fundamentals of what organizations are doing around cybersecurity are still lacking deeply, um, right? This, this is a problem that we like to call, you know, we like to call ourselves the Toyota Camry of cybersecurity. Um, and the reason we do that is, uh, you know, we, we got one of the biggest awards um, for a startup in cybersecurity. It's called the RSA Innovation Sandbox. Um, and uh, when Nate, our CMO, was giving the presentation, because my flight got canceled, actually, because of a storm, um, he, you know, asked the audience, how many of you have had a poster of a, of a car in your bedroom? Um, and that car was a Toyota Camry. And obviously nobody raised their hands and everybody was laughing. And if you did have a poster of a car in your bedroom when you were a teenager, it was probably a Lamborghini or Ferrari, some exotic car. Um, and I think in, in technology, people suffer from the same element, right? You are constantly drawn to the most cutting edge type of technology, which in cybersecurity could be, you know, deception like we were doing or, um, you know, uh, orchestration or AI um, or all these things. But actually, the thing that most people need and sells the most and is the most valuable is a Toyota Camry, not, not a Ferrari. So then let's talk about the, the you know, obviously the Toyota Camry and, and, and really this, this idea no, of a of Axonius, which is your your next baby. So so tell us, you know, like you you finally were exposed and present to this. Then you leave uh, Symmetria, uh, and uh, you started the business. So what were you know like the? How did you get the team together? How did the band you know come together? And and then how did you guys go about bringing this to life? Yeah, um, 
So it's a series of mistakes that ends up uh, being being uh, uh, wins, um, which I think is the story of every every uh, founding team. Um, so the, one of the reasons of the timing that I left Symmetria was because I knew that uh, Ofri and Avador, my two co-founders, were about to leave their current positions. Right, Ofri was still with the government. Avador was finishing his army service, um, and I knew that it's my dream to start a company with the two of them because we had worked together for five years um, in the army. And uh, I basically got to them, uh, you know, I, I, I talked to Avador first and then Ofri and I told them, look, I decided to leave Symmetria. I want to start this company. It's going to be really difficult because at that point I had enough experience with fundraising that I knew it would be difficult as, as hell to fundraise for this idea because it's so boring. It's so old fashioned. It wasn't writing any sort of, you know, hot trend. Um, so I told him it's going to be difficult, but I think this this problem space um, has huge potential, right? Like whoever solves this is going to become a huge company. So I told him let's let's start it, um, and I don't think we we'd be able to fundraise uh, early, but let's let's bootstrap it. Let's get to some sort of product offering. Let's do it together, right? Like let's let's go on this journey. Um, and uh, for whatever reason, they decided to believe me, uh, which today turns out to, to have been the right thing, but was definitely not something easy to comprehend back then. Um, and uh, the first mistake I did was that we didn't uh, really need to worry that much about fundraising because uh, very quickly after I left and we started the company, um, some VCs from the Israeli ecosystem heard that I left and they, they asked me, you know, what am I going to do? And I told them I'm not fundraising, which is the best way to, to get uh, funding. Um, but, uh, uh, what surprised me was that many of them realized that they don't understand anything about this problem space. So as a VC, there's no way to validate if this is an interesting company or not. And until one VC that ended up letting, leading our, our seed round, um, he got us in front of a few CISOs and asked them, do you, you know, listen to Dean about this problem space? Do you, do you agree with that this is a problem? Is this a pain? Should this be solved? Um, and all of them said, that this is the biggest, you know, gap that nobody is pursuing in cybersecurity. Um, I think even one of them, who's the CISO of a Fortune 500 tech company, he said, uh, if you solve this, this would be the holy grail in cybersecurity. Um, and uh, that's sort of what got us our, our initial funding way quicker than we thought. We didn't even have anything. We didn't have a deck. We had barely picked the name and incorporated the company a few days before. Um, it was very sad. So then how do you guys go about making money with Axonios? So the way we sell, um, the, the way our product works is actually to say, instead of trying to install yet more infrastructure, yet creating more data, the problem is not actually that organizations have a lack of data around what they have. It's an abundance, right? It's like spread out into dozens of different places. So what we do is we actually have this concept we call adapters, where it's it's uh, if you give us the ability to read an API or, or the management console of any of your existing infrastructure controls, could be your network, could be your agents, could be your cloud, um, could be your identity provider. We have over 200 adapters for different products that we know how to pull all the data um, and collect it all into one place. Um, now, what's surprising is almost nobody believes us when we tell them that we can show them everything they have. And it'll work in like, you know, a few minutes. Um, it's really, uh, it's, it's almost a cliche at this point. We'll show a demo. 
they'll be like, no way, this, this is how it works. Um, and then they'll deploy it and they'll be blown away and become very, very happy customers because they've been having this pain for sometimes decades um, and nothing really solved it uh, until now. Um, and this is like a very unique case of entrepreneurship. Most of the time, when you look at problems, they are, they are new problems, right? They get created because of something. For example, cloud security, right? Like it's very good to do a cloud security company when cloud is becoming popular. Like right now, for example, there are Kubernetes security companies, right? Because people are starting to move into Kubernetes. But it's very rare to find a problem that is very deep and been there for a long time, but finding a solution that nobody else has. Um, and the way we charge is, is, you know, like any enterprise software, we have like a annual subscription that's based on the size of the organization. And for this, how much capital have you guys raised? So, uh, and, and again, this is very unique to Exonius um, for many reasons, uh, but we've raised a lot of funding. We did four rounds, seed A, B, and C, which the C we announced uh, actually only a couple of weeks ago. And we've raised a total of $95 million in a little less than three years. Very cool. And obviously you guys were quite uh, at the right time in history. You just literally closed your Series C last last month. How the hell did you do that? Like prior to <laughs> coronavirus. Talking about timing, huh? That's amazing. Yeah. Um, so uh, your your next question should be how how what are the what are the tr tricks to understanding how to fundraise it effectively? And I'll I'll go into that in detail. Um, well, before, but, before, before, yeah. before actually, you know, going into, into that question, I want to ask you, how did you time this so incredibly? Well? <laughs> so like, uh, like what most people uh, who look smart end up doing is, is getting lucky. Um, so in, in all of our funding rounds in, in Exonius, um, they've been preemptive, which means that we never went out and said we want to fundraise. Uh, we've always had some investor tell us, Hey guys, I know you're not fundraising, but here's an offer to take money. Um, and uh, how to handle that preemptive offer? There's there's a whole you know school of thinking to how to leverage that well, um, which means that you don't always have to do that funding, but in many cases you can you can take that preemptive offer and turn it into the kind of funding that you would want to do anyway. Um, and that's sort of wanted what happened in this last round. Uh, I could have been luckier though, because we did sign the term sheet for it um, before Corona became really impactful. We did do the process when Corona started in China. And actually one of my investors called me up while I was on vacation and said, Dean, you have to, you know, if you want to do this round, you have to close it as quickly as possible because this thing is going to bring down the entire world's markets. Um, and I, I thought he, he, he was crazy because it was only in China and, you know, not, none of us forecasted what would happen. And he was actually right. It just took a lot longer than he thought would happen. Um, so we did sign the term sheet for it, but we had to close it, you know, at the worst time possible. Right. Um, I was, you know, I'm based in New York. This is where our headquarters of the company is. And I'm pretty much, you know, quarantined my apartment. Um, that's what I did when we had to close the funding round in between you know, the San Francisco, uh, New York, and Tel Aviv time zones. That's uh, really unbelievable. Unbelievable, Dean. And, and obviously, you know, like you've raised, uh, you know, for two different companies, you've raised quite a bit of money. 
in the fundraising journey, you've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly when it comes to engaging with investors. And I know you've, you've had a, a couple of instances there, you know, either one where a, an investor is grabbing whatever you've given them during the process and they give it to a competitor or even an investor getting their equity but not transferring the money. How is that possible? Um, so, uh, yes, through my own experiences and, and those of other founders, really there is no limit to what uh, can happen with a VC, right? Like, for example, getting equity and not transferring funding, um, getting all your data and, and giving it to a competitor. Um, you know, a VC that actually asks you to do due diligence on a company, you end up telling them they are competitor and they decide to invest anyway and then, you know, uh, leave your board. Like there's, there's just anything you can think of that is unimaginable um, I've seen or experienced uh, VCs doing. Um, oh. So, but, but also VCs sometimes do, do amazing things too, right? Like uh, they, can, they can really help you and they can really uh, make or break your, your company. Um, so what's important is to put yourself, and this is, this is what I've you know, mostly learned from mistakes um, that, that I've done or, or have seen is you have to really put yourself in their shoes and understand their incentives, right? And how, how they work. Um, so let's, let's imagine, you know, let's, let's say that we're a VC now, we're going to open Alejandro and Dean Venture Partners. Um, okay. and we're going to need funding, right? We're going to need uh, what people call LPs, like limited partners, who are the people who give money to the VCs to invest. Now, those LPs, um, they are usually very big, uh, you know, institutional organizations, right? It's like endowments of, of uh, universities, pension funds for like public uh, workers. So these organizations are very, very fiscally conservative, right? They, they do not like anything that is out of the norm. Um, so a lot of the ways that a fund raises um, its own funding, right? When a, me and, you know, Din and Alejandro Venture Partners, we're going to get our funding um, is, is very standard, right? It's mostly you create a fund that uh, has a lifespan that specifically is almost always 10 years because that's the norm. Nobody likes to do anything outside of the norm because they're conservative. Um, and the expectation is that as a VC, you know, venture capital, you'll return three times um, what you raised. So let's say Alejandro and Dean Venture Partners raised $100 million. The expectation of our LPs, if we're a good fund and we want to get more funding, is to be able to return $300 million um, on that $100 million that we got. Now, how do we make money, you know, me and, me and you running this fund, is uh, through a very well-known formula. Again, this is the standard. Almost nobody, you know, deviates from it, which is called uh, 2 and 20 right? Uh, 2% out of the fund uh, goes to us directly. So if we raise $100 million, we get $2 million. Um, and we get 20% of the carry, right? Or the, the winnings, right? So for example, if we return $300 million, we'll get um, $60 million of that. Just me and you, like Dean and Alejandro, we'll, we'll get those, you know, $62 million from that fund out of the 2020. Now, once you realize this, you realize two things. First of all, Every VC in the world wants their fund to be bigger, right? Because they get more money. They have the opportunity to get more money. But second, you also realize they have to deploy that capital very quickly, right? If I need to return 3x in 10 years, uh, but, you know, the average lifespan of a company from, you know, founding to, to exit 
let's say it's five years, I got to finish investing all that money in the first five years, right? It's like really, really intense. Um, and uh, today we're in a market where there's too much capital, right? There, there is too much venture capitalists with funds who have gotten very, very big uh, because they wanted more, right? They wanted their, their own percentage and, and it's in their incentive to get a bigger fund. Yeah. But it also means that there aren't that many companies that they can invest in because there's a lot of competition. There's not that many good startups who can justify returning that amount of money. Now, let's take an example. Let's say Alejandro and, Ven and, and Dean Venture Partners uh, raised a significant amount of money, right? We're really good VCs. We have a billion dollars to manage. That means we need to return $3 billion, right? Uh, that's like a huge amount of money. Um, yeah. And that also means that it's just me and you, right? Like we'll make a lot of money between the two of us, but how many companies can we invest in, right? Like we need to go see them. We need to sit on their boards. We need to support them. Uh, there's, there's negotiations. So we can't really, you know, effectively be involved in more than, let's say, 15, 20 companies. But that means that in order to make $3 billion out of that, you know, 30, 40 companies that will be together, assuming that most of them will fail, it means that we have to make bets on companies that can become, you know, 10x or 100x return on our investment, right? Um, and I've had VCs who tell me when they invested in me in the beginning, in the early rounds, they told me, look, then if you're going to sell this for $300 million and we'll make, you know, we'll make our, our X amount of money out of that, that's going to be a mistake for us. Because it was a waste of time, right? We could have invested in a company that actually was potential for like that 100x. Um, it would have been a mistake, which any normal person would say, how can you say that just making a few million dollars very quickly is a mistake? But it is under the incentive structure of VCs, right? Yeah. Um, so that means if you agree with, with all those you know, assumptions that I made and the way I built up the logic, uh, the only way to really get a lot of funding and the best kind of funding is if you have the potential and you're building yourself to be a multi-billion dollar company. Now, that is also a very dangerous concept, right? Because, um, for example, Exonius raised $95 million. There aren't that many companies in the world who can acquire us for a price that our VCs would want, right? Like we basically close the door on many different kinds of acquisitions. Um, but that's okay for us because we're committed to going the long term and we want to be a big independent company that ends up IPOing, you know, in a multi-billion dollar valuation. Uh, but, but most products and actually most problems do not have enough uh, meat in them, do not have enough thickness in them in order to sustain a multi-billion dollar company. Um, and that's something that most, I think, startup entrepreneurs don't get. Uh, it's either it's it's very much an all or nothing. Like it's it's incredibly hard to be able to fundraise effectively if your uh, goal is to sell, which is a legitimate goal, right? Like some people want to do that, and that's fair, and that's most of the startups in the world that are successful. Uh, yeah. But well, I mean, it's the size yeah. of the market, right? I think that you know. It's funny because when you ask uh, investors, hey, you know, like, what, what, what are you the most excited about? And they are team, 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 and team. 
And I think that that's a that's not accurate, you know, because I think that market is everything. Because you can even have the best team in the world, but if the market is is super small, then I think that that doesn't align with the incentives that I think that you very well uh, outlined. So so I completely uh, see that, Dean. I wanted to ask you here one thing that I typically ask the guests that come on the show, and that is, you know, now that you've been at it with two companies, uh, obviously you've you've been through the full cycle too. Uh, what would be, let's say, if you had the possibility to go back in time and, and have a chat with that younger dean, let's say that younger dean that is coming out of the army and perhaps taking a, a look at potentially launching a business, knowing what you know now, if you were able to go back in time, what would be that one piece of business advice that you would give to yourself before launching a company and why, knowing what you know now? <laughs> so first of all, don't do it. Uh, just just do something else. Um, but but no, seriously, uh, you really, if you're deciding to go on this path, it should not be because you think startups are fun or they're a good career choice or they're a way to make a lot of money. All those are true, but under the assumption that you are willing to do everything it takes to, to, to be successful. Because another very important aspect that nobody thinks about is that there are going to be a lot of people who are going to be betting on your leadership, right? Next time we have 80-something employees, we have uh, almost 100 customers, uh, we have investors. All those people are depending on me and, and you know my co-founders and our executive team to lead this company into being successful. They bet on us, right? Like when you join a startup, you're betting that part of your career on the leadership of that team. So really understanding the responsibility of that is very, very important. Um, and the reason why I chose to do it is because making other people successful, whether it's my customers or my employees, um, in a way that really they wouldn't be able to get if it wasn't for my actions, to me is the most meaningful thing um, in life, really. Uh, you know, doing difficult things to solve people's problems and, and make their lives better, even in a very narrow scope, is something that I see as, as you know, the, the best way of living life. Um, so if, if you have any, so uh, my, my mistake, I would say, is not internalizing that quickly enough. I definitely got into startups with, with other ideas, right? Like other assumptions, um, and they're very wrong. Um, and, and the reason why I'm, I'm so serious about it is because if you make mistakes, you're, you're going to end up uh, letting a lot of people down. Um, and it's okay to make mistakes, but it's important to internalize that that's what's going to happen if you if you're going to run a company, even successful. Of course, of course. So Dean, for the folks that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh, so happy to talk to anybody. My email is dean at exonius.com um, or feel free to go on our website and reach out to us. Uh, very happy to talk about anything from entrepreneurship, cybersecurity, or asset management. Amazing. Well, Dean, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. Of course. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.